Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Previously on The Storyteller Naked Villainy, the first police officer on the scene describes what he found in Brenda's bedroom. There was a body of a female face-up lying on the bed. Brenda's former next-door neighbour and colleague describes the grim task of identifying her body. It was actually quite difficult because she had really bad injuries. And a taxi driver is the second to identify a green mini estate car outside the hotel where Brenda was meeting two clients. I was standing uh, alongside it waiting for the fare and the inside of the car just was a mess. It's taken 45 years to bring a killer to court. And for the first time in UK history, you'll hear the full murder trial and witness justice being done. It was a brutal murder of a brilliant woman who was a rising star in genetic research. It would now be almost like a script from Morse. The investigators swarming over the, the dreaming spires of university land. There was kind of palpable feeling of evil in the air. I was told it was just a massive blood in here. Two decades on from confronting evil. So did you kill your ex-wife Brenda Page? Evil is being confronted by the law. Did you kill her? No. She knew it was coming. He said he was going to kill her. If he killed her, he would do it so that nobody would know. Will his true nature be unmasked? Are you familiar with the tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? And can Brenda's own words help secure her killer's fate? A letter of a death foretold. This is the storyteller, Naked Villainy, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. It's still the morning of day four of the trial. Dr Kit Harrison enters in the same manner most days, imposing with his height, even with his slightly stooped posture due to his age, but always polite. I find myself holding the door open for him automatically as he was directly behind me as we entered the court. He thanked me. I had a flash of opposing moral obligations to hold the door open for an elderly gentleman or to let it go in the face of an accused killer. My manners prevailed. You'll have noticed already, there have been a number of police officers reading statements they took from witnesses who've since died. These statements come under a special section of the law. And there are some that did not get read out in cases where the officer who took the statement has also died. It doesn't matter how crucial the contents are. Having so many dead witnesses in this case is an added challenge for both sides. The defence can't cross-examine the witness and test their memory or confirm the statement is accurate. The jury cannot see a witness's face and reaction while giving evidence. The only challenge they may see is the defence testing the accuracy of an officer's recording of a statement. We'll begin with one such statement. Ian Duncan, aged 69, was a police officer for 31 years and worked as a civilian for the police for a further 10 years. He interviewed 63-year-old Thomas Gray, 
who was head porter at Forrester Hill where Brenda worked. He couldn't recollect what had been said at the time, so was asked to read it out. It read, I am employed as a head porter of the Forrester Hill Medical Buildings. I have known Dr. Page since she came to work at the genetics department and became friendly with her during the course of my employment. She was a very friendly person. About three years ago, I learned that Dr. Page's husband was using the facilities in various labs in the medical buildings when he was not entitled to do so. I brought this to the attention of Mr. Cassie, the security advisor for the university. Dr. Page's husband continued to use various labs and had seen and had been seen leaving Dr. Page's lab. I learned that he, Dr. Page's husband, had been told not to come to the medical building as he had no right to be there. A short, a short time later, I was at my tea when Dr. Page's husband called at my house and on answering the door, he started shouting and bawling at the top of his voice asking what right I had to stop him coming to the medical buildings. He would not let me speak to him, so I told him to see me at work the following morning, and he left still shouting. The following morning, he came to my office and apologized. I, along with Mr. Cassie, went to see Dr. Page, as I understood that he had no right to be in her room. Dr. Page informed us that she had had a short courtship and had got married before she knew what she had taken on. She informed us that her husband had lost a lot of good jobs through his nature and not attending at lectures. She informed us that her husband had hit her several times prior to coming to Aberdeen resulting in her attending hospital for treatment. On one occasion, she said that she had returned home from work one evening without doing any shopping, and her husband, who had been in bed all day, demanded a meal as soon as she entered the door, and a row subsequently developed. She also th said that she thought that her husband thought that she was keeping back information which might help him in his studies and told Dr. Page that the small cupboard in her lab which she kept locked and which contained papers <coughs> relating to her own work would easily be opened if he wished to do so. Dr. Page informed us that her husband had no right to be in her lab and was afraid that he would damage her work. <laughs> Dr. Page's husband was told to clear all belongings from the medical buildings, which he did. I learned that Dr. Page's marriage had broken up and that a divorce was pending. I was informed by Dr. Page that she had bought a flat in Allen Street and that she had been the, 
the loser as the house at Mile End Place had been bought on a joint basis and that there were lots of things she had collected over a, a piece of time which was never lost, which was now lost, sorry. I never saw Dr. Page's husband after this time, but saw Dr. Page almost daily during the course of my employment. After she moved to Allen Street, she told me in general conversation that she did not know what to expect when she went home, as she knew that her husband had entered the flat when she was not there. She said that she was aware that the lock, lock? sorry, the lock of the door of her flat had been tampered with, and she had got to the, sh the stage of putting a black thread across the inside of the door. I don't know if she ever found this thread broken. I never saw Dr. Page bruised in any way, but I do remember that she said, I always protect my head. That's an in a statement in inverted commas. Yeah. Could you just repeat that line, please? I always... I never saw Dr. Page previously, I, I never saw Dr. Page bruised in any way, but I do remember that she said, quote, I always protect my head, unquote. This was brought out during the meeting with Dr. Page, Mr. Cassie and myself, when Mr. Cassie asked if she was ever afraid her, of her husband. She stated that she was a big woman and quite strong. Thank you. That's that the end of the statement. That completes the statement. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Mr Duncan, it's not really anything to do with the statement, <coughs> but in July of 1978, when you were taking that statement from, amongst others, presumably, Mr Gray, that would be in the context of what was, at that stage, a murder inquiry. That's, that's right. And as a, a serving police officer at the time, you would know the importance of obtaining statements from potential witnesses. Yes. And so that the ladies and gentlemen understand if they've never had a, a statement taken from them by the police, the process, generally speaking, would be that you would ask whether the witness had any information that was of interest to you, and they would answer your questions. Yes, that's correct. And when you took a statement from a witness, you would be doing your best to ensure that what you were writing down was what the witness was telling you. Yes, our, our instructions are to, to write what they say verbatim, so that, you know, that's why it's a bit, not the best English, and uh, you're, you're trying, I'm writing in a hurry, my writing's not the best at the best at times, and therefore trying to capture everything that the witness said, that's, uh, so we're writing what they say. And it's important because, who knows, in 
a year's time, or in as this case, 45 years' time, somebody might want to refer to what a witness said back in the day. Yes. And you would take great care, presumably, to ensure you weren't putting things into a statement which the witness did not say. Absolutely, yes. You're not, as a police officer, going to make things up. Absolutely not. And put them in a statement. No, it's what the witness says, that's what's recorded. And in this particular instance, I think we see at the end of the statement you had uh, Mr Gray sign the statement. That's correct. N nowadays, I think we're familiar with the situation where generally a witness will sign every page of a statement. But in, at that time, it seems perhaps they just maybe signed the, the last page. Yes, that's right. When you were asking a witness to sign a statement, would you read over the statement? Absolutely. Would you give them an opportunity to make changes to the statement if yeah. they considered that to be appropriate? That is correct, yes. And uh, when you, you did so, would you be doing your best to be satisfied that what was contained within any statement that you took was an accurate record of what you had been told by the witness? Yes, I, well, as I said, I, I would write down what they said and if I had any query about it, I would ask, excuse me, <clears throat> I would ask them to clarify it and I would uh, annotate or uh, add to the statement at the end if there had been anything further said. And presumably taking statements was something that was part of your training as a police officer. Absolutely, yeah. And that would be something that all police officers would undertake. Yes. Thank you very much. Retired police officer Raymond Barnett, 75, took a statement from Irene Bullock, who was a technician and has since died. Like many others, he didn't recall taking the interview, so they referred to the statement, which he was asked to read. I have known the deceased for the past five years. I'm employed as a technician in the laboratory at Forrester Hill Hospital. I am attached to Aberdeen University. The deceased was in charge of the laboratory. During the years I worked with deceased, I became friendly with her and we visited socially. Although we visited one another, I seldom saw the deceased husband. He did on occasions visit the laboratory at the hospital. While at work, the deceased used to speak frequently and possibly of her problems regarding her husband. Now, if we just pause there, uh, maybe a, a sign of the times, but the reference to the deceased is, is a reference to whom? Sorry, to Miss Page. Yes. Uh, is, that, is that the way it was done these days? To... Yes. Yes. I remember her telling me that before coming to Aberdeen to work, when she lived in Edinburgh, her husband had struck her in the face about her eyes. As a result of this assault, she received an injury to her eyes, which would have required medical treatment. I also know that the deceased mother 
would have been aware of violence used towards her daughter by, quote, Kit, unquote. Up to the date of deceased divorce, I never heard her discuss incidents regarding her being assaulted by her husband. But she spoke of the frequent arguments she had with him, which mostly revolved around money problems and all aspects of married life. In June 1976, I remember deceased came into the laboratory. It was obvious from her appearance that she was very upset. She informed me and other members of staff who were present that she had an argument with her husband. She stated that she had been ironing when, for no reason, he assaulted her by kicking her about the legs. I can speak to any, uh, I can't speak to any other injury. I saw that she had a number of bruises on both legs below the skirt line. She also stated that he had thrown her out of the house at Myland Place. Could you go to just further down the page, as a result of this incident? Yeah. As a result of this incident, she informed me that she was going to a solicitor to see about divorce and also to look for a place to live. I accompanied the deceased to look at various flats in the city, and eventually she bought the flat in Allen Street, Aberdeen. In November 1976, I went into hospital, and the deceased was living in my house to look after my animals. I was informed by her that she was followed home to Ellen by her husband. Because of this actions, she knew that he suspected she was living with someone else. And as a result of this, she took him back on the evening to show him everything was above board. Several months before the divorce, she approached me and asked if I would look after a, a pair of trousers, which she intended using as evidence in her forthcoming divorce. She handed me a pair of white trousers and I saw black marks on both legs of the trousers. She informed me that these were the trousers she had been wearing when he had, when Kit had kicked her and threw her out of the house. I took, I look after the trousers until the week providing uh, preceding, preceding the divorce. You've heard mention of these white trousers before. Brenda was so concerned Kit was trying to find them that she gave them to her friend to look after. But what you'll hear later is claims that Kit paid little attention to the divorce proceedings. I was also aware that her husband, Kit, had been served with an interdict to prevent him from pestering her at her work and at her home. After, the divorce, after her divorce, things seemed to settle down, but her husband was still bothering her 
although she never spoke of any violence. I know that about two to three weeks ago, the deceased had the locks changed in her flat, but I don't know the reason for this. About a month ago, Kit graduated and the deceased mentioned that Kit had his American girlfriend staying with him. Both were going to the ceremony. I think Kit had known the girl from America before he met the deceased. Could you go to the next part? It begins during the separation. Yeah. During the separation and before the divorce, Brenda became involved with an escort agency. She attended along with Val Murphy. She met a number of men, but we only, only knew them by their nicknames. One was called Mr. Volleyball, and the other quote, Mr. Silver Coaster. I was aware that several months ago, she terminated her involvement with the escort agency. On, the 13th, on Thursday, the 13th of July, 1978, I was speaking to Brenda at work and she was in good spirits. Nothing appeared to be troubling her and she was speaking about a holiday along with her family she was planning. I last spoke to her about 4.45 p.m. on Thursday the 13th of July 1978. On Friday the 14th of July, I was informed by Brenda's, of Brenda's death. I was later interviewed and gave this statement. I would like to add to my statement that on several occasions, Brenda has stated that she was afraid of what Kit would do to her physically, and that on one occasion had said, had he said he would kill her. Thank you. And it's signed by Ms. Bullock. Thank you. You might remember from Porter Thomas Gray's statement earlier in this episode that he mentioned a colleague, William Cassie. His statement was read out by retired police officer John Fullerton. I am employed by Aberdeen University as Chief Security Officer for all properties, installations, etc. covered by them in Aberdeen, including the medical school within the grounds of Aberdeen, well, it's ARIF, that's Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, yeah. Forrester Hill. The first that I knew of Brenda Page was during the late autumn of 1976, when the head porter at the medical school, Thomas Gray, complained to me that a man calling himself, or known to them as Dr. Harrison, had been calling at all hours of the day and night at the medical school. He had been found in various parts of the medical school. When the duty porter had questioned Harrison's identity, he was either very arrogant or totally ignored them and carried on through the building. Thomas Gray further informed me that Harrison had called at his home at the rear of the medical school and created a scene there <clears throat> about his right to be in the medical school. Gray said that he had been very aggressive and obviously fiery-tempered. As a result of this information, 
I spoke to Dr. Brenda Page, who was in charge of the cytogenetics department at the medical school, and she told me that she was living apart from her husband, Christopher Harrison, that she was intending serving, sorry, suing for divorce, and at least on two occasions, she had been seriously assaulted by him, which necessitated medical treatment, and in her opinion, the reason for his visits to the medical school was to obtain a pair of her light-coloured trainers, which showed his footprint. Could it be trousers? I beg your pardon, trousers. <clears throat> which showed his footprint and which she was to use in her divorce case against him. She kept these trousers in a locked cupboard in her room at the medical school. I learned from her that Harrison was working in research in the biochemistry department at Marshall College, studying for his PhD degree, and had no valid reason to visit the medical school. When I informed Dr. Page that I intended to warn Harrison not to return to the medical school, she advised me that he had an unpredictable temper and that if he had anything in his hand at the time, he was liable to hit out with it. <clears throat> I conferred with Mr. Skinner, the university secretary, who agreed that I should warn Mr. Harrison that after 28 February 1977, he would have no right of entry to any part of the university except as a visitor, because on that date, his three-year contract with the university terminated. About the middle of February 1977, in the presence of Professor Keir of the biochemistry department, I warned Mr. Harrison as above, and he appeared to accept this quite calmly. During the next few months, I heard one or two reports from Thomas Gray that Mr. Harrison was still being seen in the medical school at odd hours of the day and night and was not reporting his presence as a visitor should do. I learned that Professor Fraser of the Chem Clinical Pathology Department had granted him permission to use a desk in that department to allow him to finish his PhD thesis on the understanding that he would have access nine to five weekdays and nine to 12 Saturday. Sometime during the summer of 1977, Harrison called at my office in Regent Walk and in an exceptionally aggressive manner informed me that neither myself nor anyone else would keep him out of the university. He was in a passionate temper, shouting and bawling, and wouldn't listen to any reason. He left still remonstrating. Shortly after this, I saw Dr. Page and advised her to see her solicitor regarding obtaining a court interdict preventing his molesting her at both her home and at the university. She told me that he was visiting her at her flat in Allen Street, and she nearly always allowed him in after he began crying. He was continually trying for a reconciliation with her. A few weeks after that, her solicitor sent me a copy of the interdict, which prevented his molesting her either at her flat or at any place where she was working. I have this copy in my office. 
On several occasions after this, when I met Dr. Page and inquired about her circumstances, she told me that she was still very frightened and in terror of her life, as she felt that on the occasions he called at her flat, anything could happen. This was because he was usually at a low ebb on those occasions and took some time calm down. The last time that I saw Dr. Page was about five months ago when she told me that she hoped Harrison would obtain a job down south as there was a new man in her life. She did not say who he was and I have no idea who this man is. Thank you. Is that uh, the, the statement you took from Mr. Cassie? Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Three damning statements from three colleagues, but all are deceased. However, would the jury take into account the most crucial element of this case, circumstantial evidence, and the repetition of threats allegedly made to Brenda, and now accounts from others who saw her injuries and witnessed Kit Harrison's explosive temper? What hadn't been said in court and would not form part of the evidence was the reaction of Kit's colleagues you heard part of the interview from the late Professor Hamish Keir earlier in the series. He hadn't known that Brenda and Kit had divorced, but after her death, he learned of the troubles and the suspicions of colleagues as to who was responsible. Obviously, she, we knew at that stage she'd been brutally murdered. And uh, I think that was probably when I became aware, or was, was made aware, that Dr. Harrison, Kit Harrison, and Brenda, his wife, as I think she still might have been at that stage, uh, had marital difficulties. I, I hadn't known about that, so we started to speculate on the role that Kit might have been playing in events up to and including the ghastly night. Uh, but at that time, I'd learned that he had been apprehended by Grampian police so it was difficult for us to do other than speculate because we had no first-hand evidence on which to uh, hang our thoughts. What was the atmosphere like when he returned to the department? Difficult. We realised that he had been uh, speaking with the police and suspicions had arisen in our minds and when he came into the laboratory to clear up his apparatus and equipment, notes and the other paraphernalia that a scientist has, we find it difficult to converse with him and he of course had withdrawn into a shell of silence so it was very very difficult. He never actually spoke to you about it? No. Did you ask him about it? I remember one day saying to him how are you and he said not very well, thank you, in his characteristic manner, and that's as far as I got. In your opinion, without naming names obviously, but in your opinion, do you think you know who might have done this? I've uh, grave suspicions. And your colleagues? Same. The same grave suspicions. And is that person still alive? Yes. If you're able to speak to that person, what would you say to him? I really can't answer that question. I would find it very difficult. I would 
treat it at arm's length, I, th I think. I would not wish to engage in a conversation with the person in such a putative matter. That was, of course, my late boss, DJ McDonald, carrying out the interview. And wasn't it fascinating? Just imagine a colleague returning to work under a cloud of suspicion that they'd murdered their wife, who you knew and respected. More of that to come. In the next episode of The Storyteller Naked Villainy, Brenda's closest colleague also received a warning. If ever I'm found dead and it looks like suicide, don't believe it. The court hears she too considered joining the escort agency. At the time I might have joined it myself because I was so pregnant that I didn't think it was a good idea and the changing faces of an accused killer. Kit Harrison could be a perfect gentleman, but he could also be intimidating and sometimes very rude. And he could turn quite quickly from one to the other. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review as it makes a huge difference to guiding people to hearing this important story. This is an entirely independent production and your support is greatly appreciated. And if you want to hear exclusive interviews, longer episodes and insights, please head to the Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. This is a piece of history and you are for the first time in this format witnessing justice being done. <laughs>